name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to another Talking Bat. This time I have got, goodness, immense pleasure, okay, totally honoured to be talking back with Dr. Susan Swift. Sue Swift, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, Sue, how are you doing? Hi, Neil, good to talk to you. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing really, really well, really, really well. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I, I, you know, I mentioned your name quite a few times to quite a few people, certainly during training sessions and Goodness, I have got a lot of really fond memories of some of the stuff that uh, I've learned from yourself, for example. And I know that there's lots and lots of people around uh, that have the same. So I'm really, really looking forward to uh, talking to you today. So Great, in, good. I'm looking forward to it too. Yeah. You're in Perth, is that right? Yeah, just to kind of let people know where you are. Uh, no, Perth, sure. I, I'm actually up at Glenshee. Glenshee, wow. Okay, yeah. so what's, what's the weather like today? Quite frosty this oh, morning? Beautiful. beautiful. No, we didn't have frost. had frost last night and then uh, it was um, clear by this morning and it's a beautiful morning here. Fantastic, wow. yep. Good I was out stuff. with my dog this morning and had a lovely walk. Wow, good stuff, good stuff. Right, so we're just going to just kind of crack on with sort of talking bat and anything else that happens to uh, come, across, uh, come across our minds. So, um, where are we? Sue, I mean, you, you sent me this picture, um, you know, before, before today's interview. And, uh, yeah, when was this taken? And what is that you've got around your neck? <laughs> right. I think I, we were talking about this the other day, and I think it was either 78 or 79 that we took this. It was just at the start of my PhD um, I sent you the photo, as I said jokingly in the email, to show you just how clunky bat detectors were. Also, that my hair wasn't always that uh, as grey as it is now. The, um, the thing round round in the blue bag is actually a period meter because the bat detector, which was the size of a brick, um, the microphone kept falling off. That's why it had to be on a string. You'll see. Um, it was very heavy to carry, and all it would do was just about detect a bat. So Brock Fenton, who many of you will know about, had designed this period meter, which would actually give you, if you hitched it up to the bat detector, a trace of the call so that you could have a much better guess as to what the bat was. So that's what that was. It was very heavy to carry around, and I did a lot of miles in it. Wow. And of course, back then, and, and I'm fortunate enough to be old enough to remember the world before mobile phones and internet and social media and emails. I mean, back then, how did you learn about bats? Because it's not like, I don't even think the Bat Conservation Trust existed back then from memory. And uh, if they did, they would have been very, very young organisation. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. They didn't get going till about 1980s. So I actually started um, with Paul Racy in 1976. He was a brand new lecturer at Aberdeen at the time and had moved up. And he'd been working a lot in bat physiology. But it, conservation was just becoming a thing at that time. And it was fairly obvious that 
you know, killing a lot of bats for physiology was never going to be a possibility again. And Paul had come up with the idea that if birds could have ecology, so could bats, um, and decided to give this a try and was looking for a student to help him do some very, very basic stuff like when bats came out at night, how active were they at night? Were they active all night? What did they eat? Really basic stuff like that. So that's when, when we got started on it. And yes, it was very primitive. Um, as I say, that was one of the very first bat detectors. I was armed with a torch with a red filter on it, um, a pair of infrared binoculars, which were the most expensive thing in the project. They were from the army and you needed a van to carry them around. Um, batteries were too heavy to carry. Uh, what else did I have? Not much else, really. And I sat all night at roost counting, counting bats and actually finding out where the bats went. I mean, radio, radio telemetry was way in the future. So what we did was, do you remember those caving lights where you had a, a substrate liquid and a, a activator liquid? Yes, and you uh -huh. could bend them and get a green light. Well, we separated that, injected it into little capsules and glued them onto bats. Okay. And then we spattered the place with students who were all bribed probably with a pint and uh, worked out where the bats went. And that was the first time anyone had worked out the bats actually had foraging roots. So it went back a long way. Um, when I started, I could find two papers on British bat ecology. That was it. That was in 1976, and they went back to the 60s. There were a few more from the States, but very little. So on the good side, everything we found had to be new. On the bad side, it was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. So that's what we did. And for the first, that, that was my student project, that one. And then we carried it on into a PhD. And, and it was essentially on... Uh, what bats did when they did it, and a little bit of working in the roost. Nobody had thought you could go into a roost and watch what they did. Yeah. So just to kind of recap there, so were you one of the very first students studying bats under Paul Racy at Aberdeen University then? I was his first ever bat student. I also, my PhD has the honour or the honour or something like that of being the very first PhD project ever to be done on bat ecology in Britain. Wow. So it goes back that far. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. So uh, are you, are you kind of suggesting that, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be slightly naughty here. So uh, you kind of launched Paul Racy's bat career or you helped <laughs> I mean, he was he was well established in bats before that. But as a bat ecology, yes. And I think Paul has said in public that, you know, due to my PhD, that's how we got bat ecology going. So it was pretty pioneering work. And you, you had to be inventive. You know, you had to come up with ideas. Um, so if this didn't work. Well, try that, you know, like trying to work out how long a bat spent out of the roost. I can remember sitting down, and I'm no mathematician, and what I'd done was count every bat in and out all, all night and then draw a graph of how many bats were out of the roost, work out to the area under the graph and divide it by the number of bats. And, you know, it still holds up today that the number of amount of time bats spent foraging I wasn't far out. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, that, that, is, that is amazing. And I had not appreciated that uh, yours was the first ever PhD on this particular subject. Wow, mm. wow. Uh, so Shows well, how old I am, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So tell me a little bit about the dog then. Was this your pet dog at the time or uh, the, the dog? Yeah, he was. He was a rescue dog that uh, my husband, then fiance, and I rescued. A friend of mine was a vet student and had rescued the dog and said, I know someone who'll give it a home. And uh, he was called Matt, as in Dulux Matt Emulsion, because he was a Dulux dog. And we had him for about five or six years, and he came everywhere with me. He was good bodyguard and a very good friend. Well, it's just an amazing picture. And, and I don't uh, think I've been without a dog since. <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about, about your research then. And, I mean, I think what I've put up here are, are just a couple of what could be many examples. But uh, I know you've done a lot more research yeah, the first, the first the PhD stuff was all on activity patterns, where bats forage, diet. I did a lot of diet. I actually sort of was one of the first in Britain to do diet analysis. It's kind of stuck with me. Then it, we went on, actually. The next thing we did was much more practical. Um, it had been known for a long time, again shows how old this was, that uh, chemicals such as DDT and lindane, which everybody used for timber treatments in houses, particularly remedial timber trees. You could buy these chemicals and just you know, spray it yourself. You weren't even told to put a mask on. And there'd been rumors in the bat world for a long time that these were killing bats if they were used in bat roosts. But um, the timber treatment companies weren't interested. No, no, it'd be something else. So Paul and I did a small project with bats in cages um, and we proved that both lindane, which was the insecticide used, and PCP, which was the very commonly used fungicide to treat dry rot, were absolutely lethal to bats. And they were killing them terribly fast. And furthermore, permethrin and uh, other artificial pyrethroids, which were experimental at the time, Roth Amstead had just developed them. They were, we found, we showed that they were pretty safe because they were a copy of a naturally occurring product. Um, animal uh, bodies can process them and get rid of them, whereas with the DDT-based chemicals, they couldn't. So I won't go into the boring details. We had a long fight with Rentakill and the likes of them. Um, and eventually the, the, um, our experiments were repeated by, I think it was Nature Conservancy or one of, one of the big places in the South found exactly the same results. And eventually these were all banned in bat roosts and they still are today. And only permethrin-based uh, chemicals are used. So although it wasn't a very pleasant project to do, it was certainly one of the most useful and um, positive for bats that I've ever done. And that was that was 1982 to 86, I think. Yeah. And, and then, and it, sorry, no, carry on. No, well, I, I mean, I, I started, I, I first started getting uh, involved with bats. I think it was 1994 was when I got my first bat detector and I started going on courses and stuff. But... What I remember a massive difference between uh, bat courses back then and today was when you went on a bat course in the 1990s and, um, and it's all to do I think I didn't know it at the time but it's all linking to what you're talking there about these chemicals they used to have sessions on the course that were devoted to bats and timber treatment works uh, trying to kind of get across to New bat workers, uh, the dangers with these chemicals, and how still, uh, how still, some companies in the mid nineties were 
stop potentially using mm -hmm. some of these lethal chemicals at that stage. And that, that's kind of all I wanted to say was just I mean, mm -hmm. people, going, yeah, people going on a back course today, they never you don't think about, about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know yeah. we we did we did uh, renovations in our one of our in our cottage a couple of years ago, and I said, "Oh, you got to watch. There's bats in there." And straight away, I mean, there's there's a list of things you can use in a bat roost, and you use one of those. And even the, all the, the builders know about it now, so it, ha it has worked well. Anyway, I see a picture of the natura's bat, Neil. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Yeah, go on, go on to um, talk about I that. Have a few yeah. Years, <laughs> I had a few years out of research while my kids were little, and during that time, um, Natura's bats, which had not been thought to be present in Scotland or only in the very south up until the 80s, we were finding them further and further north. And I got myself back into research, ostensibly with a survey on myotis bats in Perthshire. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. To see just how far north they went. Um, and the more I looked, the more Natura's bats I found. And I thought, there's got to be some projects in this. So while I was supposed to be doing survey work, I did a little uh, project, which is this paper on Natura's bats, and became absolutely sold on them. They're so clever and so genuinely different to other bats. But later on, I thought, no, there's got to be a good project in it. Because one of the things that's always fascinated me, having done a lot of diet analysis, is the sort of the the echolocate how they perceive their prey and what they eat and natures were just so different in that they're gleaning bats they take food off solid surfaces but a dear friend and colleague of mine um, Bjorn Seemers in uh, Germany had showed that they could not listen unlike long-eared bats which can switch off their echolocation and just listen for prey sounds and uh, therefore not get too much into the clutter and not get um, they can actually get take get right down to the plant surface because they don't have to try and listen for the echoes. Natural bats couldn't do that, but still somehow they were doing it. So I had a couple a colony in the in a flight room, which I got very fond of. I kept changing the bats every so often, but uh, they were wonderful bats, adapted great really well to captivity, and we got a lot of a lot of results from them. And what they were doing was a mixture of learning where the prey was and actually using their tail membranes to beat, beat vegetation and toss the prey up in the air and uh, catch it. So that's why they eat a lot of things like spiders and diurnal flies, which are just active late at night, just settling on the vegetation. And then they can actually get these by grabbing them off the, off, off the, uh, the, the leaves. So I did this project and found out how they gleaned. And then that led on with Bjorn Seamers, who uh, I, I had, because you, it's really difficult to know whether the bats were, were echolocating or weren't. So you needed a good idea of using brown long ears, which we knew quite a lot about as the control and comparing them with the natras, how they feed. And Bjorn said, yeah, I don't like that much. Well, it's a good idea, but they're so different. What you need is a long-eared myotis. I said, well, tough, I haven't got any in Scotland. 
<laughs> so he said, that's all right. We've got them, we've got them in, in Tübingen. So I went out and we did a brilliant project comparing Natura's and Bechstein's bats, which roosted in the same net, um, um, bat boxes in, a, in an orchard and foraged in the same um, forest. And what we showed was that because the Bechsteins, which are just like a long-eared myotis, they could actually stop and listen. They could pick up pre-generated sounds. They could even pick up the sound of Bjorn imitating a moth fluttering, and he was fantastic at it. And they would come <laughs> and try and eat him, whereas the Natterers didn't. So that was a wonderful project, and it, it really tied in bats' anatomy, bats' morphology with how they, how they feed, what they eat, and consequently what we need to do for their conservation. So that, that was a fantastic project. I really loved that one. So when, uh, when, when were you actually doing that specific research? Can you remember what, what year that was? Was that early the, 2000? The Bechstein's project was 2002, I remember that. The Natura's one was about 97 to 2001, because I remember giving a paper on it at a conference in Kuala Lumpur. That's the reason I remember that. Okay. Um, and then the, the, the Natura's one, the, the Natura's Bechstein one was... Uh, 2002 we carried on for a couple of years with I think it was published about 2006. Yeah there's a Natteris one here that I've got on the, on the slide here which was uh, yourself and Paul uh, and that one was published in Yes that was that was that was the the um I did that partly on a NERC grant and partly on a Daphne Jackson fellowship which I had for a year and that was when we we sort of had the colony in the flight house here and had them you know foraging in in captivity so that that then led on to the to the Bechstein Natteris project yeah. wow. the other one you've put up was just a very little thing about the, that was the first thing at first first one I think about Natteris in Scotland just showing they existed and what they did and when they came out and it was very much a basic a basic ecology project yeah but it's these it's these it's these basic projects that then uh well, they, 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 give, they give kind of foundations, launching boards to then ask other questions, don't they? <laughs> exactly. You've got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah You've yeah. got to start somewhere. Yeah. So uh, so what, what was, just going back to Paul Racy, uh, what, what was he like? He must have been, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate I have met Paul. I, I know what he looks like and what he sounds like. I've had a few conversations with him uh, many years ago. Um, but he always struck me as a well, he's a really interesting, uh, passionate person about what he was doing up in Aberdeen University and and all the bits of research that he's been involved with, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that must have been quite an inspirational person to be working under, alongside, whatever. Yeah, I was so lucky to work with Paul. I really was. He was. See, he he sort of made my career. He, he was a real enthusiast. There was nothing he couldn't do, even though he didn't have a lot of knowledge in some areas. He'd find somebody who did and he'd work it out. And there was there was always a can-do attitude. Oh, we'll find someone who can do that for you. And uh, yeah, he was he was absolutely great, very supportive as a supervisor and a dear, dear colleague for 40 years. So um, miss him since he retired. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he's totally out of bats now, is he? I mean, I haven't really heard much about him the last kind of few years. Um, um, I think he still does a bit. He, he got very into international bat work, um, bat conservation worldwide. He did a lot of work in Madagascar and 
um, I think, in the Far East as well. And I think he kept on with that after he retired because he enjoyed all the traveling. Um, whether he still is or not, I'm not sure. I hear from him occasionally, but uh, I think he, I think much less. I think he's given up on the publishing now and the research. He's, he's just uh, probably enjoying, enjoying retirement, yeah. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about a little bit more about some other elements of your research in, mm-hmm. in a few minutes, but let's just uh, move on. Now, as you know, I've done a few books myself, okay? But but when you did this, and I'm trying to remember what year this would have been, was this the 1990s from memory? Or yeah, it... I, think the, I think the book was published in 98, so I started it about 96. Back then... And this might be hard for some of our listeners to appreciate, but again, we're talking about a time where things like you know, the internet, um, computers, you know, no, didn't kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. home computers were were very far, few and far between. Yeah. Um, I got into this. It was a colleague at Aberdeen, not Paul. I would hasten to add, um, who uh, had been asked by Poiser to write uh, a monologue on pipistrels. And in fact, that never got written because if you think about it, 96 was just about the time when the pipistrelle species were being split. That's right, yeah. And this guy decided that a monologue now would not be good because it's all going to have to be changed. And I could see his point. But they also wanted one on long-eared bats. He said, oh, I know someone who can do that for you. And of course, I was flattered um, and I said I'd do it. And I had no idea how much work would be involved. And... It was at the stage, you know, I was living in Glenshee, miles from anywhere. Um, no no home computers at that time, or they were very, very clunky and new. Um, but I had a student in Aberdeen who helped me, and I can remember her doing literature searches in the library in Aberdeen University and putting them onto dozens and dozens of floppy disks. Do you remember floppy disks? Oh, yeah, I, t- I totally remember <laughs> floppy disks, but I'm, but I'm quite sure there's quite a few people listening will think, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you, you couldn't get papers by, by email. You then had yeah. to write to people to get the papers. And yeah. I mean, I have cardboard boxes in my attic still full of old papers on long-eared bats. It was a challenge, and it probably wasn't the right time in my career and lifestyle to do it, but uh, I had to do it because I'd signed the contract, so I can remember many late nights sitting up trying to get this damn book done, and I was glad I did it. It was a real sense of achievement at the end, and although, you know, times have moved on, it's out of date now, it's still, again, a good a good starting point. I wrote it really partly for students starting on a bat career just to get to get sort of how to launch onto these bats and partly for the bat group people who, you know, they're such nice bats. They're such easy bats to find and to, to study that it was a good starting point I felt for bats. So uh, that, that's, that was the story of, of the book. And I think it's still, it's still quite relevant today, which is quite nice, you know, 20 years on. Yeah, it's, it's totally relevant. I mean, it might, it might interest you to know that I think it was about maybe three, four weeks ago and somebody emailed me and they asked, do you have a copy of Sue Swift's Long-Eared Bats book? Because they were they were looking to uh, reference it in a consultancy report because of oh, well. something that was written there. And, and well, luckily I do have a copy, so uh, that's it. But when you when you wrote this, were you working mm-hmm. on a typewriter or an old word processor? I mean, how did you actually get the words on paper? 
Um, I think we did have an old computer with a word processing package attached. It was long, but just probably just before office. Um, I, I, I did. I did type it. I remember that. Um, and that's about all I can remember. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. remember getting, um, being really pleased when they got a real artist to do the pictures because they were defeating me. Um, <laughs> yes, I, th I, think, I think we did. We, we had a, um, a very old Amstrad computer with a, a sort of word processing package that added in. It was very basic, but uh, it worked. We got there. Well, I, I just, uh, as I say, I, I know how hard something like this is to do today. Oh, like, yeah, you know, you've, you've had yeah. the same thing, yeah. yes. Yeah. I do remember the very end when I thought, thank goodness that's finished, and they yeah. came back and said, are you doing the indexing yourself? Oh, no. <laughs> I had to start <laughs> Yeah, as I say, I know, I know how hard it is to do something like this today, and I can't even begin to imagine how hard it would have been to do something like this uh, back then, where the whole world wasn't at your fingertips, and if you wanted to, exactly, find yeah, that's right. Um, anyway, um, we got there. We got there. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people uh, like this book, and I know a lot of people that have got it. So, uh, no, it's oh, well, that's it's, good. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, rabies, and and I suppose <laughs> I mean I first came across I first came across you. You won't remember this. I first came across you uh, in the flesh, so to speak, at a BAT course that was done in Kondrogan Field Studies Council Centre. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it was around about 1996, 1997 from memory. Okay. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, I did, yeah. did those with John Haddo every year, I think. Yeah, and that was an amazing course, um, mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing course. And, and I seem to remember and this might help us get the date right, but it was round about that course, Colin Cato, that used to be in the Bat Conservation Trust, he, mm -hmm. was, he was on that course as a co-presenter with you guys from memory. And, and I remember him talking uh, quite enthusiastically about the pipistrelles being split into two separate species. Mm -hmm. And because that was the year where... Uh, the paper got published that uh, used the DNA to, I think, mm -hmm. take it beyond all argument that it was definitely two species. So uh, I think that was about 96. Okay. Well, my memory says, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Well, that's possible because I know I started 94 and obviously mm -hmm. I've been doing bats for at least a couple of years before I was on that course. But mm -hmm. then... Um, I mean, the, the stuff that I've really got the fond memories of, and, uh, and this is me just reminiscing a little bit, but um, was, anyway, I was so fortunate to spend time with yourself and Ian Mackey when the, the couple of roosts that I had in the central belt of Scotland through the Batamel project were being mm -hmm. used as part of the rabies stuff. And we had quite a few really nice uh, nights uh, doing bat work, talking rubbish and all the rest of it as well. Um, but the other thing I remember, which I just want to touch upon very, very briefly before we I talk know what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it the mist netting? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you very kindly agreed to uh, train me up as a, a mist netter. And uh, yeah, and, and, you over, and I actually told this story to quite a few people that I do mist netting story uh, training for. 
And I was halfway through telling this story at a back conference when you then walked around the corner and joined the group I was telling the story to. Yeah? And this was the night where you'd invited me down to Dumfries and Galloway uh, because you got, you know, yourself and Ian were trying to catch the Bentons under a river. And this was going to be part of my misnetting training. And I seem to remember it was a three-arched bridge uh, with a river going under it. And mm-hmm. you, give me, uh, you give me my own misnet under my own arch, yeah? And, uh, and we didn't have walkie-talkies or anything like that, so we all had our own misnet under our own arch. We couldn't see each other. And, and I had a bat fly into my misnet. I think I got the first one out okay. And then I had another bat fly into the misnet, and I was trying to keep myself balanced in this running water from <laughs> And I had a bat in the hand and I then leant forward and I did the schoolboy error with a misnet. I went too far forward and my head <laughs> torch got caught. We've all been there, Neil. Yeah. And then another bat went into the misnet. Right? So I'm stuck in the misnet, trying not to slip in the running water with a bat in one hand, head torch in the net, and I am screaming at the top of my voice. <laughs> and you couldn't hear me, of course, because of the running water. And then... And then after about, it felt like ages, but it was probably only a minute. But after a long, what felt like a long time, you kind of appeared around the corner with your head torch. And <laughs> what are you doing, sort of thing? <laughs> and I'm going, there's a bat in the net, I'm in the net, I'm trying not to fall. And just, yeah, but within a matter of seconds, you'd taken me out of the mist net, you'd taken two bats out of the mist net, you'd passed me the bags, and then you kind of just walked away and left me to go on with that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny sort of side effect of misnetting in water that the water gets deeper the darker it gets. You know, you think it's fine. It's only six inches from the top of my waders. And then as soon as the bats start coming, you're in. I've fallen in so often over, over those those years. Yes. Yeah, the the rabies project was was fascinating. I mean, it was it was a horrible way to get it started, but it was a good project. We ran it well. Um, yeah, my memories of, of it are, well, a lot of them are of you and your heart trap up that viaduct, which was the most amazing bit of engineering I can remember. And the biggest <laughs> luxury was having someone else catch the bats for us. It was fantastic. That's right, yeah, because, yeah, because we because we had the heart trap and bits of string <laughs> to get it up there, and uh, and you and Ian, you you had you didn't have this to be. I don't remember you always having the tent, but I no, we you, were supposed to use the tent because it was yeah. what the Home Office called a pod, because we was all Home Office licensed, of course, and you weren't okay. supposed to do things to bats that yeah weren't very nice, like taking blood samples from them, uh, where the public could see you. So we had this tent was actually a licensed pod, they called it. But wherever we could, it was really cold in the pod and the bats tended to get cold, hence the hot water bottle to keep them warm, to keep the blood flowing so we could get the blood out of them. So we did have a tendency sometimes to use cars um, when the home office weren't likely to be around. But um, (laughs) generally, generally, yeah, um, we we used the tent and you bringing me Bad, back, bat, bats in bags was such a luxury because normally we would have to catch them all first and then yeah. sit up all night 
bleeding them and getting saliva samples and morphological details. Um, as in this one, I think you said this um, photo, the bottom photo in there, you yeah. said when you saw it, you looked pretty pissed off there. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was, that, was, that was the end of a longish night, I think, trying to catch bats in an old castle. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah. What, 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 what we had to do. Um, SNH gave us, I think it was twelve sites. They gave us so their computer generated twelve um, grid references, and within twenty five kilometers of each, we had to get a site. And we had to catch twenty bats and get uh, blood samples, saliva samples, morphological details from them. So we were all over the country, and some of the sites, if we were misnetting over water, would take maybe three or four nights to get enough bats. So it was a lot of traveling and a lot of all night work, but uh, it, it was satisfying and we, we did it and it ran for uh, eight years, I think, that project yeah. and got some, some interesting results at the end of it. Yeah, because I, I, I can't remember the stats that came out of it at the end, but you were able to show um, the percentage occurrence of uh, these bats having the uh, having evidence of having come in contact. Yeah, I, th I think we did something like three thousand bats over the over the years, and we only had one that was actually um, emitting rabies virus. But I think it started off about twenty five percent of them. It was endemic right throughout all the sites, and I think initially about twenty five percent had antibodies. Um, and then it gradually fell off over the years, and then started to rise again, which was interesting. Um, as I say, it was in it was endemic all over. Some of the most interesting bits actually were that because we ringed all the bats we caught, so that the bat had a ring number and all its its samples and everything went with the same ring number. And in the latter years, we were catching the same bats again. We made an effort to try and catch them if we could, and we had bats that went from positive to negative, and some bats that went from negative to positive, and we had bats that one thing that even went from negative positive to negative to, to positive again wow so wow. they were living for years with it it wasn't killing them and they were managing to get the um, you know to get rid of the antibodies and then being infected again which was really interesting so that there was some interesting stuff that came out of it and uh, so um recent sort of more recent research has shown that probably migrating to autumn swarming sites is important for the virus to keep to keep it sort of moving among the bat population. So there's still a lot more to find out from it, but uh, it, it was a really interesting project. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm just uh, well, I'm, I'm so you know, so pleased to have helped in a small way towards it. And just oh, uh, you did believe I, me, I you did. Yeah. yeah. And of course, there was a load of people helping me to help you as well. So it wasn't wasn't well, just all exactly. me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, I, I've yeah. always said that you know, without the bat the bat groups and the bat conservation people yeah. throughout Scotland, we couldn't have done it because they were incredibly helpful at finding roosts, helping me catch, getting permission to be there. You know, the bat bat groups did a heck of a lot to help with it, and I was always very grateful to them. Right, let's let's move on to uh, a few other things. So this is this is just one slide, but I think this is a slide where uh, there's quite a lot of different things I want to ask you about here. Uh, so first of all, uh, Pete Guest Award winner 2009. Uh, you must have been, oh, I don't know, you must have been uh, humbled, proud of yourself. Surprised, I think, was the main word, I think, um, yeah. for that. Yeah. 
mean, there was a, there's a lot of prestigious names on that on that award, and I was I was very touched to get it. Yes, because um, it, it is for voluntary work, not for not for professional work. And yeah, it's it's really nice to have something like that that uh, acknowledges all the unpaid work that people put in, and many put in a lot more than I have. Yeah, but yeah. it it was yeah, it was good. The, in, in advance of today's interview, I actually was able to find the nomination form that was put to BCT, that the thing that people get to read before they decide who they're going to vote for. And you had about what, four or five people on your nomination form uh, explaining why they felt you were a good candidate uh, for the award that year. From memory, uh, Anne Youngman, Brian Bogue, for example, they, they, they wrote quite a lot about you and particularly with the work you were doing in Perth Back Group and stuff you did to uh, inspire people, you know, that were getting into bats and training and all this kind of stuff, you know. So it's, you know, it was quite interesting, quite interesting reading. Oh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's still it's still on the BCT website. That's that's where I found it yesterday. Uh, yeah, right. so, uh, yeah, and I and I know I definitely voted for you, so I, I definitely oh. know that. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's, a long time ago now. it's it's what yeah. eleven but, years ago. Goodness, time flies. Well, but one of the things that was mentioned uh, was uh, to do with this picture on the top left, which is a heated bat box work. Oh, yeah. um, you want to talk a little bit about what you were doing? A little doing? bit about what, what about this. Yes, this, this um, started, I think, about 2002-03. Um, I was looking for a new project, and uh, I'd had it. The, 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 there's always been a problem, Neil, with um, when maternity colonies of pipistrels are excluded from houses, and they will always have to be excluded from houses because you know they can't always be kept. Um, there really wasn't a good mitigation. Now, they were working a lot on in-building in bat boxes, but A, they don't always work, they're not always practical, and B, a lot of the roost owners just didn't want the bats in the houses anyway. And I sort of had come up with the idea that it's well known that generally maternity colonies don't like bat boxes. And I thought, well, partly they're not big enough and partly they're not hot enough because pipistrels are really heat-seeking bats. So I thought, well, how about if we could make a bat house that was actually heated? And that's that's what I designed. Or um, it's actually my husband John who designed it. He's an engineer, and uh, he designed the whole thing. So it was based on the BCI Bat Conservation International Bat House, which is a big thing in America. And what we did was we had a, a sort of module that went, was just a, a actual big box. And then the module went up, it had little roosting crevices in it. And up the sides where the bats couldn't get, there were heating coils and a control circuit, because otherwise we didn't want to, we didn't want to cook them. We wanted it, we wanted it to mimic a, a, a roost in a house as much as possible. So he came up with this brilliant circuit that uh, maintained it with just a little bit of daily fluctuation, but not much, kept it above 25 degrees, and it worked perfectly. At the time, we did try solar heating um, them, but solar panels weren't good then. I think they're a lot better now they might work. The other thing was they worked better on buildings. I think pipistrels like the sort of security and the heat of a building. So we had them mounted on the houses and we had a two-year project and we had control ones without heating. And the heated ones worked and the unheated ones were much less good. And we did actually get maternity colonies in them. 
Um, and I think they were commercially produced for a while afterwards. Whether they still are, I'm not sure. The problem is they needed quite a lot of maintenance. And for mi uh, mitigation uh, purposes, I was never quite sure who was in charge of, of maintaining them. But they did work, and where nothing else is, is, is practical now, they're still put up and worked. And it was an interesting sort of a game that I really find fascinating about this all is the interface between research and actual practical conservation. And this ticked these boxes perfectly. So that, that was early 2000s, I think. And there, there's still a couple of them working, as far as I know. There's one at Battleby. Anyone who's ever been at a conference in Battleby will see. And it's still used. So that's good. No, that's amazing, amazing work. And of course, back then, when you're doing this sort of stuff, I mean, there are a lot of companies now produce heated bat boxes, you know, that get sold as part of uh, compensation, you know, schemes for development, etc. But, but 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. You know, you, you, you're kind of doing this ahead of the curve, so to speak. Yeah. A lot of people thought I was a bit, a bit, bit round the bend to think this one up, but one of the ones that worked. I think you have to start thinking like a bat. And when you've been at it as long as I have, I've got a feeling I'm beginning to think a bit like they do. <laughs> and I mean, the other thing, the, other thing uh, the picture in the top right there, um, uh, I was actually in the room that night. This is a picture, I think, that... Uh, I don't know who took the picture. It might have been John Haddo. I think, I was it could have been John. Anne organised the thing, but... Yeah. But she's sitting there, so she obviously didn't take the picture. So, uh, no, no, I think it might have been John. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, I was I was sitting. Uh, John crafted the picture beautifully because he made sure I wasn't in it. So uh, <laughs> thank you, John, if you're ever listening. Uh, but I'm sitting next to that gentleman on the left there. Uh, but but anyway, what we're we talking about, ladies and gentlemen, back back in the days before DNA uh, could be. Uh, no, droppings could be sent away for DNA analysis. Uh, when bat workers were trying to identify uh, bats through their droppings, you were looking at things like size and structure of the droppings. And if you then took that to the next level, you would do dropping analysis and look at insect components under a microscope within a bat dropping to try and give an indication a, what a bat was eating, or B, what species of bat was the dropping likely to come from. And Sue was uh, someone, uh, one of a very small number of people that really had a good reputation for doing this kind of stuff. And that picture there relates to a workshop in which she's training us uh, how to do this technique. Do you want to talk us a little bit more about the bat dropping analysis, Sue? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, re the basic sort of reason I do it is not for that, but was to, to work out diets. It was at, at the time really all the only way you could work out what a bat eats, therefore what, where, where it's going to eat, what it needs to be to cons be conserved. So insects, as everybody knows, are basically made of chitin, which is a, a, a protein which is indigestible to animals. So that although bats tend to chew a lot of the good bits off, quite a lot of the chitin comes through the droppings and you can extract it and you can identify it so that you can tell, I mean, you know, you can work out what the bat has been eating from these little jigsaw puzzle bits of, uh, of chitin, which is fine if all you're doing is diets. But at the time, yeah, I sort of thought, well, 
now that we're beginning to know about bat diets, we know, for example, that brown long-eared bats eat a lot of moths and a lot of other gleaned insects. Naturists, as I said earlier, tend to eat a lot of spiders and flies and things they've gleaned, but not, not moths for, for a lot of reasons we won't go into. Pipistrels eat small flying insects. Um, they tend to chew everything very small. So you can end up with a sort of bunch of criteria which would give you an idea from the diet what bat it was that it came from and added to the size and the shape of the droppings. It was always a bit of a guess. It's a bit like carts before horses, you know, that uh, you're trying to assume one unknown from another. But in, as you say, in lab, before you could do it definitely from DNA analysis, it was a good way in the absence of the bats to try and work out what bats you were dealing with, therefore important to bat groups and consultants. So what I used to do was I sort of set it all up for them. I had slides made up of all the little bits of insects and they could look at these and decide, you know, look, look for what they're looking at. And if you've seen um, a, a sort of leg off a harvestman or you've seen a lot of moth scales or a bit of spider's leg or something obvious like that, then you sort of can learn to look for it and it becomes quite compulsive. And so what these people were doing then, they were each given a bat poo on a slide and pulled it the simple binocular microscope, pull it to bits, take out what you can get, and then compare it with whole insects, which I always try and get people to do, so that you can say, oh, because you know, if you can't tell a spider's leg on a spider, you're not going to be able to tell it when you just fished it out of a bat poo. Right. So that, that's what they were doing. And it, it became quite popular. I used to do a lot of these workshops at uh, Scottish bat conferences and things like that. Um, and nobody became an expert overnight, but they could get a good educated guess at what the bat was. And also they just wanted to look at what the bats they were studying were eating. It was a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, I still do quite a lot. And it's, it's, um, People still send me droppings to to analyze and yeah, it's it's a good thing to do in the winter when you're tucked up in your study with your micro microscope. <laughs> but a really interesting one came through, um, must be about three or four years ago now, um, with a guy in I think it was Belgium who was working on Myotis imaginatus, the notched bat, which are like big natteras, and they're known to 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 glean um, off roofs of things. And lot, they eat a lot of flies. And this guy had come to me and he said, well, we're doing a big, it's, it's a, a vulnerable species all over Europe, this thing, um, doing a project on them. And we're working with them in these big industrial cow sheds, which I think, you know, like huge dairy, mega dairies. And we want to know how important the cow sheds are. So he sent me all these, lots and lots of these droppings. And it was fascinating because from two of the sites, all they were eating was a thing called Stomoxus calcitrans, which is like a, um, a biting stable fly. And they seemed to be eating virtually nothing but that. Uh, whereas from the last site, they were eating the things Myotis marginatus normally eat, which is lacewings and spiders and fly and lacewings and spiders mainly. So I said, well, you know, what's happening here? Can they can they, these ones not get into the cow sheds or is there not a cow shed in their area? Well, there is, but I think it's be, they've been blocked out. I said, right, well, the answer is, you know, let them into the cow sheds. They're getting rid of all the flies. There's something like 90% of their diet in these areas were these stable flies. So it was a win-win wow. situation. So that, you know, can still get into interesting situations, even when all you're doing is 
poking about in a diet. You can really come up with good um, conservation ideas from that and interesting ideas on the ecology of the bat as well, particularly these little known bats. So, you know, there's always something interesting and new to learn. That's just amazing, amazing stuff, amazing stuff. So, uh, and I mean, I always, I used, used to think about, uh, you know, what, what you're doing there. It's a little bit, and a lot of people will be able to relate to this, I'm sure, taking an owl pellet and uh, then, you know, taking the owl pellet apart and then you get the bits of the mammal's skulls and from... Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it's, it's kind of like that, but you're working with something, I don't know, a hundred times smaller. <laughs> yeah, and chewed up. The, good, the thing about <laughs> birds is they don't chew. Um, I've been working with a Dutch guy the last couple of years who sends me swift pellets to analyse. Yeah. And uh, they're a heck of a lot easier than bat ones because birds don't have teeth. And the biggest yeah. problem with bat droppings is that the little sods chew it all and spit it out before <laughs> you get to it. So important things like wings are tend to be missing. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's like a it's like a very complicated jigsaw puzzle with half the bits missing. But it does become compulsive. So watch it if you get into it. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Right, Sue. So, uh, yeah, I think that takes us almost to the end. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before before I, we sign off? Or a... I think I've done quite enough talking. Thank you. <laughs> I never shut up. No, not, not, not at all. It's been absolutely amazing, and uh, and I've actually learned a few new things about you, um, which uh, you know, which has been really pleasing for me because there's there's a few things that have come out there that, uh, dis despite the fact that I've probably known you for 20 plus years uh, there's a few things come out there that I didn't know and uh, and that's that's been amazing so I just want to say uh, thank you again so much for taking the time today to uh, talk back with me so uh, it's been a total pleasure not at all it's been my pleasure Neil thank you very much we hope you enjoyed this talking back interview which is an edited audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.